Good morning. Good morning. Well, today, uh, last week, we, we finished our series through Paul's letter to the Philippians. Uh, but don't despair. We got lots of Bible left to cover. There's lots more to go through. Um, and so today, we turn our attention to the gospel according to Luke. Uh, interestingly, if you remember our, uh, the context of Philippians, uh, where was Paul as he was writing? If you remember, he was in house arrest uh, in Rome. And the story of Paul getting to Rome is actually in the last two chapters of the book of Acts. Paul had been on trial in Caesarea because the Jews uh, were constantly trying to kill him. Uh, But instead of enduring the fake charges that they were trumping up against him, uh, Paul just appealed his case to Caesar. And so they shipped him as a prisoner to Rome. And of course, since it was Paul, the ship wrecked. Uh, on the way there uh, in Malta, where they stayed for about three months. And of course, Paul just did miracles and shared the gospel there. So uh, that's what Paul does. And, uh, but then in the very last chapter of Acts, in chapter 28, we read this um, about his journey. And starting in verse 11 of chapter 28 in Acts, it says, after three months, we set sail in an Alexandrian ship that had wintered on the island. And then, and then down further in verse 16, when we entered Rome... Paul was allowed to live by himself with the soldier who guarded him. We set sail. We entered Rome. That's not Paul saying that. Who keeps dropping the, 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 the personal pronoun we? Luke. One of Paul's close companions, Luke. He was there for the shipwreck. He was there as they sailed to Rome. And he was there helping Paul while Paul was on house arrest. And, and over the next several years from AD 60 to approximately AD 62, as Paul spent his time in captivity, writing letter after letter to, to encourage and to teach the churches, just outside the walls of Paul's house arrest was Paul's friend, Luke. And what was Luke doing? Oh, just a little project, compiling, uh, that he had been compiling for quite some time, investigating and interviewing eyewitnesses, tracking down leads, and now probably at the same time Paul wrote Philippians, Luke is writing an account of our Lord and Savior. And just as Paul's letter was a blessing to the church at Philippi and then to so many churches like ours, likewise, Luke's account of the life of Jesus, plus his part two companion book, you may have heard of that one, The Acts of the Apostles, These writings have testified to the world uh, for nearly two millennia, the greatness and the goodness of Jesus. And I pray that as we joined all those throughout history who have looked at Jesus and Luke's gospel, that we may be encouraged in our study. Uh, So would you pray with me as we begin? Father, we thank you so much. We praise you for your word. We praise you that... Uh, the Son of God is, has been made known to us. God, and we need your Spirit as we look to the Scriptures that we would see and hear our Savior not in such a way that we've heard and seen him before. That we would not be dulled to the stories of Jesus, uh, to the miracle, uh, miracles that Jesus performed, and to the ultimate uh, miracle, his death on the cross for our sins. Would that not be commonplace and boring to us? But Father, by your spirit, uh, would you draw out in us worship and awe at the God-man himself who stood among us, who walked uh, and, and, and took on flesh, 
And God, will we marvel and worship. So we need your spirit to understand, to hear, help us. And we pray all this in Christ's amazing name. Amen. Well, breaking news. You hear that one a lot these days, don't you? Uh, it's fascinating what passes for news these days. Uh, I, I, actually, I remember a hint of, of banter when I was growing up about how the news was biased this direction or that direction. But, but oh, but now, oh man. The, I feel like the news organizations know it, right? And so they're just begging us. They're just throwing taglines onto the end of their organizations. Things like, fair and balanced. Believe us. Uh, the news you can trust. Uh, I'm waiting for a tagline that says, we promise. We're telling the truth. Believe us. Uh, I think one of the most frustrating parts of, of modern life, and particularly these past 10 to 15 years of the internet and social media age, is that there's a growing loss of public trust. Increased skepticism of authoritative sources of news and information and a growing feeling that, that everyone must, quote, do your own research. You've probably heard that. But how do you do that? If I can't trust any of the seven major news outlets, uh, which of the 25 news blogs should I go to for information? Or the 30 talk radio programs that I can find? Or which of my 200 Facebook friends should I trust? Trusted news is hard to find. But imagine you're in the first century, living in a small village in Asia Minor, and someone tells you there was an earthquake in a city near Rome, which was likely several weeks' travel for you. Wow, where did you hear that, you ask? Oh, someone was traveling on the main highway. They told me about it. And of course, the main highway itself is a day's travel away. So what would you do? Who could you trust for reliable information? Was there really an earthquake? What happened? Were people hurt? Was it serious? Was it even in Rome? Was this messenger even a sane person? Did he even know what he was talking about? And guess what? There's no internet to look it up. No phone, no news station, no radio to dial in, not even someone's camera to see pictures. So what would you do? Would you pack up your belongings? Would you leave your family behind and travel to the road, hope to catch another traveler there? Suppose another traveler comes along, but knew nothing. Or worse yet, someone comes along who has conflicting information. So would you then set off on the two-week journey yourself to ground zero? Go find the earthquake, see it for yourself, interview the locals and find out what happened. Who would harvest your field while you were gone? Who would take care of your family? I know there are some pretty treacherous places along the way. What if you were attacked or even killed? You know, maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe I don't really care that much about an earthquake. Uh, I'd sure like to know the truth, but it just sounds a little more problematic than it really is cracked up to be. And, and how's that really gonna affect my life anyway? Now, imagine that someone told you that there's a man who could heal the sick. Even sicknesses like the one your neighbor has. That this man promised rescue from the enemies that occupied your village. They say he may be the Jewish Messiah. They say that he is forgiving sins. He's angering the religious leaders and, and offering eternal life to anyone who would follow him. 
But the leaders, it, they're saying now that he, they finally killed him. And now the rumor is that the authorities can't find his body. Some are even saying he may have risen from the dead. What will you do now? You see, reliable information is minimally important when dealing with minor news. But for news that matters, for the news that matters, we crave certainty. We need certainty. The Christian message is news. And today, we're delving into the good news, the gospel news, according to Luke. And as we're going to see, Luke wasn't interested in giving you his opinion on the matter. He's not editorializing. No, this news is way too important. Luke was meticulous. In fact, he says in verse one, something has been fulfilled among us. This isn't just a story. This isn't just local man done good, news at 11. No, this is the promise the prophets foretold. This is the culmination of history wrapped up in a man. As we begin our journey through Luke's gospel, today we're just arriving at the starting blocks. Maybe you didn't even know we were jumping into the race today, and that's okay. You're right on time. You're, you made it. Uh, the gun hasn't even sounded yet. You don't need shoes for this one. It's easy. I mean, you leave your shoes on if you got them, um, but you don't need running shoes. We're good to go. It'll take months for us to walk through the gospel of Luke, um, but it'll be some great months. Week by week, looking together at our Savior. What, what did he think? What did he value? What did he do for us? And what's he asking of us? And so today, before the gun even sounds, before the race even starts, we're, we're gonna survey the scene. We're gonna look at the lay of the land. What will we see in Luke. And I want us to answer three questions as we get started. Number one, who is Luke? Number two, to whom did he write and why? And number three, what are the themes we're gonna see along the way? Number one, who is Luke? So it, Luke's authorship of this gospel account has been widely accepted uh, through church history, beginning with the early church fathers. Uh, but what do we know about him? Uh, Luke rarely says much about himself. So we have to piece things together. Ancient writers mentioned that he was likely from Antioch. And as I mentioned earlier, we know that he was a companion of Paul, particularly in Paul's later travels. So anytime you see we in the book of Acts, uh, that's when you know that Luke was present. Uh, Luke was involved in what was going on. Uh, Paul refers to Luke uh, being with him on three of the letters that he wrote, uh, in 2 Timothy, in Philemon, uh, and then more uh, especially in Colossians, in Colossians chapter four. This is where Paul uh, refers to Luke as the beloved physician uh, who sends his greetings. So, so he's a doctor. Uh, this may also explain why Paul wanted him around as he got older. It would be nice to have a doctor that just went around with you everywhere. Uh, this feels funny. Can you look at it? Uh, also, you can imagine why a doctor might have uh, been especially uh, interested and wanted to highlight of the miracles of Jesus. What a fascinating perspective for a physician. Also in Colossians 4, Paul lists two groups of friends who send greetings. One is a list of his Jewish companions, and then everyone else is in the other list, and Luke is in that list. So Luke was actually a Gentile believer, 
Interestingly, that means Luke and Acts are the only two books in our Bible written by a non-Jewish author. Another reason Luke is such an important figure is he actually wrote the largest percentage of the New Testament. This two-part account, Luke and Acts, uh, outweighs the 13 books that Paul wrote uh, in word count. And I, I believe that's still true, even if you give Paul credit for Hebrews, which I don't necessarily think we should do, but even if you did, uh, Luke wrote more. Number two, to whom did Luke write and why? So first, his audience. Uh, Luke starts both books, Luke and Acts, by mentioning Theophilus as the recipient. So who was Theophilus? We actually don't really know. Uh, many believe it's likely Theophilus was someone in Rome. Uh, most honorable, this is a, a word given to a Roman dignitary, so it's possible he was an important person. Uh, remember, we just saw last week, Paul references Christians who were in Caesar's household. So it may be that Theophilus was in Caesar's household or part of the close party of Caesar. Um, it's likely he was a wealthy Roman. Uh, clearly, he was interested in Jesus. Some speculate that he may have even funded Luke's little project, his writing and his interviewing. Uh, but the, Theoph the identity of Theophilus is not uh, critical, uh, but it's at least interesting uh, that some commentators uh, believe that Theophilus isn't actually a name at all, uh, but that it's instead a pseudonym. The name Theophilus, literally, the words together mean lover of God. So some speculate that maybe Luke isn't writing to a person at all, but rather he's writing this account for all of us, most honorable lovers of God. Though I, I, I kind of lean toward this being a real person, I, I think either way, Luke's efforts were, were clearly not for Theophilus alone. Written with some of the most sophisticated language of the gospels, Luke clearly intended that people of all types, of all stations would read his account and learn about Jesus. So why write? Look what Luke says right here at the start. He just comes out and tells us. In verse one, many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us. So Luke's not saying, hey, I'm the first to do this. It's, he's not going, man, finally somebody just needs to write this down. I'm gonna do it. No, he's saying, I've, I've read what others have written. I've benefited from them. God has given these accounts to us. They've been passed down to us. There were already stories being told and circulated of Jesus's ministry on earth. I mean, you think maybe traveling with Paul, maybe Paul had a few stories that he could share. Paul was friends with the other apostles. He knew them. Do you think maybe uh, there are a few things he was able to tell Luke about? Oral testimony and storytelling. This was important uh, in their tradition. Even the other gospel writers, some had begun writing their stories down. Luke clearly relied upon Mark's testimony in some places in his account. This is why you see shared material in Luke that is also in Mark. But Mark was far from his only testimony. He surely read others' writings. He relied on many eyewitnesses, many faithful historians who shared the stories of Jesus. So if others are already telling the stories, well, then why even write? Why is Luke even writing? Look what he says in verse three. So it also seemed good to me since I have carefully investigated everything from the very first to write to you in an orderly sequence, most honorable Theophilus. So Luke, the researcher, the doctor, empowered by the spirit, 
He used every ounce of reliable testimony he could find. And he constructed a faithful accounting of the life of Jesus. As he interviewed and as he read different accounts, he would carefully ascertain fact from fiction. Could it be corroborated by multiple eyewitnesses? Keep it. If not, get rid of it. Some interactions are in one or two or even all four of the gospel accounts. Uh, for example, there are several details that it, seem, it seems that only Luke and John uh, wrote about. Only Mary and Martha are in those two gospels. Only Luke and John seem to know exactly which ear Peter cuts off of one of the guards in the garden. It was his right ear. And only those two accounts share the detail of the visit to the empty tomb by Peter, though only John mentions that he outran Peter to the tomb. I love that each gospel writer has his own voice and his own knowledge of the Lord Jesus that he draws upon, each account sharing both uniqueness and similarity. And what's the final result? In Luke, we get the longest of all the gospel accounts, more words, often more detail than some of the others, and praise God for Luke's thoroughness. And man, he got some nuggets. Like he got some good stuff. Many believe that Luke, the great investigator, was actually able to interview Mary, the mother of Jesus, that he spoke to her directly in her old age. And because of Luke's effort and through the Holy Spirit, we read Mary's song. And we, we hear the precious thoughts of this amazed young mother. As Luke writes, Mary treasured these things in her heart. And why did he do all this? He says it in verse four so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. He wants you to be sure. Sure of that what you've heard of Jesus is right, is true. We need reliable news about Jesus. There, there's a lot of strange versions of Jesus that are being taught out there today. But we don't, need, we don't need what others think about Jesus. We don't even need to know what we imagine about Jesus. There's nothing spiritual about blind faith in shaky information, no matter how sincere. There's nothing noble in banking your life on myths and big fish stories. Luke wanted us to know. He wanted us to rest our faith in the truth about Jesus. His true life, the true heart of his ministry, the amazing certainty of his death and his resurrection. Friends, Luke is our big brother, our faithful researcher, our reliable reporter, and he made sure of the story he was telling. And he did it for you, and he did it for me, us, the lovers of God. Because of Luke, we get to see more of Jesus, and praise God. Lastly, we're gonna spend the rest of our time talking about some of the themes that we will see in Luke I'd love to mention every theme from Luke, uh, but it's the longest book in the New Testament. Uh, and I only have a short period of time, so I'm gonna miss some stuff. Uh, that's why we're doing a whole series. Uh, you know, come back for more. Uh, we can't cover it all in one sermon. So number three, we're gonna see the, the themes, Luke's themes. What will Luke show us about our Savior? Uh, theme number one, the salvation of Jesus. Luke highlights the saving love of God. Luke mentions the word salvation 13 times in his two books, Luke and Acts. This word is, is nowhere in Matthew, nowhere in Mark, and only once in John. He also uses the word savior and the verb to save more than others. 
Uh, Mary sings it in chapter one. He says, my, she says, my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. Simeon in chapter two, when he sees Jesus, he says, my eyes have seen your salvation. And what did the angels say to the shepherds? Today in the city of David has been born to you a what? A savior who is Christ the Lord. And yet this salvation doesn't just appear out of nowhere. This salvation fits into a larger story. Where does it fit into the context of God's story? Jesus kind of sets this in in one of the most beautiful uh, encounters in the book of Luke. At the very end of the book, in chapter 24, Jesus sets the salvation in its proper context when he shows up alongside some of his disciples when they're walking on the road and debating what on earth just happened. And they're saying to Jesus, haven't you heard that Jesus died? And they explained to Jesus that they heard that the body had disappeared and some angels showed up and that the angels said he was alive. So what does Jesus say to them? Uh, in Luke 24, he says, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them for the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Wow. He's going, this is his like think McFly moment with his disciples. Think, you're my hard-headed friends. All the stories that you've been told your whole life about the Messiah that was coming, all the law of Moses that you've memorized, all the prophets you've studied, it's all happening now. It's probably hard to recognize the the most important moment in history when you're actually in it. But salvation history was now. All of scripture pointing to this moment, that Jesus, he's here. Jesus is the Messiah, risen from the dead. Salvation is here. And then theme number two, he didn't just come for the Jews, no. Number two, he came to save the lost. What does Jesus say to Zacchaeus in Zacchaeus' living room in chapter 19? He says, today salvation has come to this house for the son of man has come to seek and save who? The lost. And he doesn't just save lost Jews. No, what did the angel say to the shepherds? I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for the Jews. No, for all the people. You think this might have been an important thing for Luke, right? A Gentile. He needed to know it was for all the people. John the Baptist cries out in chapter three, every valley will be filled, every mountain and hill will be made low, and everyone will see the salvation of God. And then Jesus in chapter nine says, whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will save it. The gospel is for the lost. The good news is for all who are lost. Whoever, Jesus says. But let's go even further. Number three, salvation is not just for the lost, it's for the forgotten. Salvation is for all who are forgotten, overlooked, beaten down, even those who are despised. Throughout Luke's gospel, we will see Jesus give warnings to the rich, to the elite, to those who are religiously impressive and publicly pious. And then over and over, he will move in compassion toward women, toward children, to the poor, to the disreputable. 
Each of those groups could have their own theme, but I'm, I'm just gonna hit them really fast. Jesus elevates women. Over the past 20 or 30 years, I think maybe even further back, there's been, a, I think, an, an effort to, to show Jesus as a, as a manly man. Even paintings, historically, have changed over time of Jesus. Uh, in the past, some of the paintings, uh, there was an era where paintings of Jesus, they, they weren't quite as masculine. They were a little more soft and glowing. And, and, but in more recent days, depictions of Jesus have become a little more muscular. He's been hitting the gym. Uh, at an elder retreat uh, a few years ago, this retreat center where we were at, they had this awesome stained glass picture of Jesus, and he was swole. I mean, Jesus was ripped. Uh, we called him the whole weekend. We called him CrossFit Jesus, um, and we really appreciated him being there with us. Uh, I, and you see it, I think, even in churches. I, I, I don't, I, not to pick on anybody, and I won't, uh, but I, I feel like I, I'm seeing more and more pastors looking a little more intimidating. Uh, preaching in t-shirts, showing off the guns. Um, I'm working on it. Um, that's maybe the next phase of my preaching. Uh, but look, uh, the importance of, of men loving and serving in the local church um, and in, in their homes, this is huge. This is, uh, this is in the scriptures. It's everywhere. But even in our church culture, this must never be at the expense of inviting women to know Jesus, to serve him, to use their gifts in the church, in the home, in the community. And in Luke's gospel, in, in this first century culture where women were vulnerable and second class, Jesus elevates them. Jesus sees women as worthy, as image bearers loved by God. In fact, what a shock to devote nearly the entire first chapter of his gospel account, a very long chapter in the Bible, to Mary and to Elizabeth, and then shortly after to Anna. And this will just continue throughout the book. In chapter seven, Jesus has compassion on a widow, and then later that chapter, on a sinful woman who was hated by the religious leaders who wanted to wash his feet. In chapter eight, we learn of many women that Jesus healed, who then became followers of his and, and traveled with his disciples, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Susanna, in chapter 10, we meet two of his close friends, Mary and Martha. And then when Mary sat and listened to his teaching, instead of serving with her sister, did Jesus scold her and send her off to go with Martha? No, he commended her. He wanted her to learn. In chapter 13, Jesus heals a crippled woman on the Sabbath, and the synagogue leaders roast him for it. And Jesus calls them out saying, you would rather help cattle on the Sabbath then help this precious woman. There's the persistent widow in chapter 18 and the one who gave a sacrificial offering in chapter 21. And even after the crucifixion, when many of his disciples were long gone, Luke says, look at these women preparing him for burial. And who is the first to witness and proclaim the resurrected Jesus? You guessed it, a respectable leader in the community. No, it was a woman. A woman. Jesus elevated women. And then Jesus condescends to children. It's not just women, it's children. Most heroes, uh, most hero stories focus on uh, the hero's fortitude against the strong, standing up to other men. But here is Jesus kneeling low, welcoming children in chapter 18 
In fact, Luke's gospel, we're gonna see uh, that, that Luke gives more attention to Jesus's early life, his birth and his, his childhood more than any other gospel. Jesus prioritizes the poor. Who do leaders hang out with in our culture? The movers, the shakers, right? The influencers, the wealthy. But that isn't Jesus's strategy. In his first message in the synagogue, what does he read from Isaiah? The Lord has appointed me to preach good news to the poor. Jesus himself was born with animals, announced to lowly shepherds, Even the song his mother Mary sang while he was in the womb in chapter one says in verse 52, he has toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has satisfied the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. Over and again, in a culture that would have equated wealth with righteousness, Jesus flips it on its head and he warns the rich and he exalts the poor. When a rich young man asks him in chapter 18, how do I inherit eternal life? Simple, Jesus says. Just sell all you have. Give it to the poor and follow me. And the man goes away sad. So does Jesus have disdain for the wealthy? No. Jesus had wealthy supporters. Theophilus was likely wealthy. Jesus communicates God's disdain for the haughty. He scattered who? The proud. And as we look at Luke's gospel, Jesus is going to point us again and again away from the fleeting and cruel master that is money. He welcomes the despised, the sketchy. Uh, Sinners and tax collectors, they don't run from Jesus. Chapter Chapter 15 says they're drawing near to him. A gospel account that begins in such an unexpected way with an unmarried pregnant woman, with an old barren woman, and with a group of skeevy shepherds, it just keeps on going as Jesus spends time with a hated tax collector, with a despised and sinful woman. Even a good-for-nothing prodigal son in the story Jesus tells, who's been eating out of a pig trough, this son is welcomed home as a son. These were the friends of Jesus. This is who the good news was for. Not the elite, not the powerful or the proud. No, Luke says the gospel is for the lost, the poor, the marginalized, for vulnerable women and children. Blessed are the poor in spirit, he'll say. And then in chapter 14, he'll say, this is one of my favorite verses growing up. I said in verse 11 of chapter 14, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. As we watch Jesus humbly move toward the lowly in the weeks and the months to come, I pray we'll be amazed and that we'll be compelled to follow our Lord. Christians, we love to see celebrities come to faith, don't we? Uh, we get riled up when, you know, Kanye, all right, Bieber, yeah. Um, and, and some of you maybe, I don't know. Uh, but... But may our concern be just as much, may our rejoicing be just as much and our concern be as much for the orphan, for the widow, for the elderly, for the single person who needs Jesus, for those in prison, for your anxious neighbor, your lonely coworker, 
for the little boys and girls of our church and our community, for the teenagers in your life. May he lead us to have a waiting list in our church to serve in the children's ministry. Jesus prioritizes these, and so should we. Luke's gonna show us that. A couple other quick ones. Number four, the Holy Spirit. Of course, the man who chronicles the spread of the early church in Acts would also be sensitive to the movement of the Spirit as he writes his gospel account. The Spirit is all over Luke, uh, more so than we see in the other gospels. We've got John the Baptist, full of the Spirit in his mother's womb. We've got the Holy Spirit who comes upon Mary, the angel says. We've got Elizabeth and Zechariah and Simeon and Jesus himself filled with the Spirit. And then, of course, Jesus teaches his disciples about the one who will come, the Holy Spirit, the one who will give them the words to say. Luke wants us to see the ministry of the Spirit alive and active in the life of Jesus. Number five, prayer and praise. We get seven prayers of Jesus alone, uh, often at key points in his ministry in Luke. He gets alone to pray. He prays for his disciples. He prays for himself and even for his enemies. And then he tells parables about prayer. He prays as a widow who continues to ask for what she needs. And then he condemns the prideful Pharisees, who, who would, the Pharisee who would pray publicly only to show off his own righteousness. And, but it's praise also. Commentator Leon Morris calls Luke the singing gospel. There's so many famous Bible songs in here. In fact, they're so famous, they all have famous Latin names. Uh, the angels sing, Gloria in excelsis Deo. You've probably heard of that. Glory to God in the highest. Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. There's Mary's Magnificat. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. And there's Zachariah's Benedictus. The dawn from on high will shine on those who live in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. And then Simeon's song, which I learned this week. I didn't know this one. It's called the Nunc Dimittis. So when Simeon sees Jesus, he sings, you can dismiss your servant as peace, in peace as you promised, for my eyes have seen your salvation. The words joy, rejoice, praise, these show up more in Luke's gospels than any of the other gospels. Luke is going to show us that Christ's salvation is worth rejoicing over. It's worth erupting in song. Why? When God fulfills his promises, when he sets his affection on the unworthy, even when lost coins, lost sheep, lost sons are found, how could you not sing? I'm gonna close with one more theme. And then after that, we're off and running. That's our flyover. Uh, next week, the, the, the journey really begins. It's gonna be, I believe, a fun walk through this book. Uh, but I'm gonna close this with one final theme that I think we'll see in Luke. Uh, number six, Jesus cares about individual people. Jesus cares about individual people. And Luke, Jesus is so much more than a preacher to multitudes. Over and over again, he touches individuals. Oftentimes people who felt that they were invisible. And Jesus locked in on them and he moved toward them. 
Luke is a gospel where you will see yourself. Maybe you feel lost in the crowd. All of us have felt that way. Maybe you feel like if I wasn't here, it wouldn't matter. I have hurts and disappointments, anxieties, inadequacies, and no one really cares, and I don't blame them. I've never known what it means to be loved, accepted, forgiven. Maybe you feel like my life's not even a blip on the radar. Is that how you feel? If that's, if that's you, maybe you've never believed because you didn't think you could be loved by Jesus. Know this today, that there is, there is no one too lost that Jesus will not find you. The humble savior by his cross, he cares for you. And Luke 15, Jesus says, what shepherd among you, as he talks to these, this crowd, he says, what shepherd among you, if he has lost a sheep, would not leave the 99 and go after the one until he finds it? And so he is saying, that's, that's who I am. I am the good shepherd. I'm the one who came for the lost, not the found. If you feel lost today, Jesus invites you into his family. He invites you to his table. Have you trusted him? Have you believed the trustworthy testimony about him that he died for you? That's what he came to do, the good shepherd being nailed to the cross for the sheep. If you haven't trusted him, do it today. Don't wait for the rest of Luke. Don't wait till next week. Do it now. Come to him now. And when you come to him, you will be more perfectly loved than you could ever imagine. More fully forgiven than you could comprehend. He will make you well. He will save you from your sin. Maybe you know Jesus already, but you've forgotten his care. You've thought you needed to be the lovely, the smart, the religiously impressive in order to draw near to Jesus. Maybe you've forgotten that it's not those who are healthy who need a doctor, but those who are sick. See yourself again. As we walk through Luke, I, I, I encourage you to see yourself again in the poor and the needy. Come to Jesus. He will make you lovely. He will meet all of your needs. He is not repulsed by you. He is not annoyed by you. He is not bored with you. He wants to draw near to you because he loves you. Oh, may we see our Savior. And may we draw near to his offer of grace. And may his cross, his empty tomb, remind us that we were once lost, but he found us. And he saved us. He loves us. Let me pray for us. Father, we... We're so overwhelmed. So overwhelmed that you would love us, that you would care about us. Father, in our right minds, we recognize that we bring nothing to you. Lord, would you help us to be those who believe that about ourselves, who are the poor in spirit, so that we might see you, so that we might know you, so that we might have ears to hear, so that we might look to Jesus and believe that 
He is for us. Father, would you help us as we walk through this gospel? Would Jesus not be dull to us? Would the offer of his grace not be just like an old song to us? But would it be like air to us, filling our lungs, giving us life, and setting us, sending us on and forward as the forgiven, living children of God? So God, would, would you do this? We, we need your spirit to do it. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.